Hi all, we're coming close to the end of the current series of Ecolution. We're not done yet, but whereas some creatures hibernate in winter, we have to plan and record for the next season. As I record, it's mid-November and finally there's a chill in the air. And I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking about Christmas. I don't know about you, but one thing I've always found in my stocking each and every year is a book. And the idea of curling up cosy to read something good just sits well with me at this time of year. So today we thought we'd meet an author and one with a real connection to the topics we discuss regularly here on Ecolution. Hello, I'm Nicola Davis. I'm a children's author, but I specialise in writing about the natural world and our relationship with it because my background is in zoology and that's been my lifelong love. I don't really know when my love of nature started because I don't remember a time when I didn't have it. My very, very earliest memory is of being the same height as a tulip and looking in to the bowl of this beautiful red flower. And they've got a sort of lacquered inside with black stamens and seeing a bumblebee buffeting around inside this flower. But the other thing that goes with that memory that means I'm not just interested in the beauty, I'm also interested in the science, is the voice of my father in the background who was trained as a biologist and was a good countryman, raised in the Welsh countryside, explaining to me about pollination. So all the things of the beauty, the emotional connection with my beloved daddy and being in the garden and learning all from the very start went together for me. That love of nature was something that Nicola turned into a career, studying zoology and then moving into TV. A long time before most of you were born, a new programme started on the BBC and Nicola was one of the hosts. Right, hello and welcome to this. That's right, the really wild show, and a big welcome from Nick, Chris, and myself to this, the very first in a brand new series of natural history programmes from Bristol. And as you've heard, we've got lots of children from the Bristol area, haven't we? We certainly have. Well, what's all this about in this programme? Well, it's about animals, about pets, about wildlife, but most of all, it's about your questions. That's right, it's your questions, and you can even try and ask us a question that we don't know the answer to, but that'll be a bit tricky, I reckon. Oh, yeah, it's very difficult, that. When I used to present The Really Wild Show, one of the most important things for us was to take questions directly from our audience, no matter how simple, no matter how straightforward, or no matter how eccentric. All children are born with this little flame of curiosity, and if you treat that little flame right, it will grow into a massive bonfire that will mean that they can consume and enjoy and acquire all sorts of information about the world. But you have got to treat it right. And that's why it's really, really important to listen to those first questions, those first little bits of curiosity, those first inquiries about the world from children and give them the best answers that you can. I have a real bugbear in books and in television programs where they'd explain a structure or some aspect of the natural world and then to cover the really technical bit that they think the child won't understand, they'll use the word special. Oh, it has a special this or a special way of doing this. And that's laziness. I have done it. I have committed that sin my, myself, but that's laziness. That's the adult not thinking it through or not understanding themselves. 
so much better to say to the child, oh, this is a bit complicated, we need to unpack it a bit, or to say, you know what, I don't really understand this bit myself, shall we investigate it together? And to be in a position where you can say to a child, let's find out together, what is more empowering for a child to be with an adult who says, we are co-investigators here and equal. That really makes sense. All the adults I respect, and yes, I'd even include my own parents in there, all of them have helped me investigate the world and ask the big questions. But one question that's been on my mind while making Ecolution is when did we change the kind of relationship we have with nature to make it feel outside of us as opposed to being a part of us? I think our relationship with the natural world has changed, but has changed over a, a much greater time period than in my lifetime. In my lifetime, the consequences of our changing relationship have come to the fore. But I think the change in relationship happened a long time ago. And actually, I think it really started changing when we stopped being hunter-gatherers. Because hunter-gatherer societies have a very, very intimate and respectful relationship with nature. But they have a relationship with nature that is created by practicality and need. All hunter-gatherer societies know that if you overexploit a natural resource, it will not be there for you and you will die. It's that simple. And that is, you know, like Darwin said, death is a very strong selection pressure. Death is the thing that actually shapes evolution and it shaped human behavior and human cultural systems and belief systems for many thousands of years before we started having farming and agriculture and industry and all the things that have gone with it. So I think the rot set in a long time ago, and I think we have a lot to learn from those indigenous societies that still exist on Earth. In my lifetime, what's changed is is capitalism, actually. Capitalism has become much more rapacious and has stuck its fingers into every aspect of our lives. And actually, we have been brainwashed to believe that the cost of everything and the value of nothing is a sort of sacrament. And that ideology of putting a price tag on everything, a price tag set by a particular set of values, I have to say, is the right way to be. And I think that's what's been really, really damaging. But I think people are waking up. I think they're beginning to realize that the things and stuff culture is actually not working for anybody, except a vanishingly small number of people at the very top. And actually, if you looked at their psychological profiles, you'd probably realise that it's not working terribly well for them either. I think it's changing. I think it's changing. You know, and of course in Ireland, the Celtic civilization that existed in Ireland and in Wales not so very long ago actually had that same intrinsic respect. So it's not something that is geographically distant from us in Europe. It was all here. It's right under our feet still. Instead of continuing into the world of academia, Nicola decided early on that she wanted to be a science communicator particularly for young people. I initially started writing for television programmes and I moved from being a research biologist into television for lots of reasons, but primarily because I realised that as an academic, I would just spend my life preaching to the choir and I wanted to get the message across to a wider audience. And children were my audience because I'm eight on the inside. And they are the section of society that I'm most comfortable with and I can speak to most easily. 
grown-ups not so much. That was why I sought out that audience. And the great thing about talking to children about natural history, any aspect of the natural world, is that they are excited by it. Just as I, I think, was born with a passion for the natural world, I've never met a kid who didn't already have it, some sort of interest, or whose interest could not be sparked by even the smallest thing in the natural world. And I've seen it time and time and time and time again, and it's always fantastically inspiring, seeing children being excited by not just the big exciting things like you know, how fast the cheetah run and how big your inheritance is and all that kind of stuff, but the ladybirds running around and eating green fly on the roses, you know, a, a slow worm that you might be lucky enough to find under a stone in a wall. You know, I've seen it happen so many times that I know that all human beings have that absolute deep-rooted, innate connection with the natural world. And of course we do, because we are part of it, however divorced we think we are. We're still part of it. Nicola has written almost 100 books for children. Wow, that's a lot. And almost all of them tackle issues that can seem too big for children. But in a way, that's what makes them easy to understand with characters that are warm and relatable. And in her latest series of books for older children, starting with The Song That Sings Us, she's chosen to tackle the subject of biodiversity loss and nature connection in a fantastical world. In The Song That Sings Us, I wanted to create a world that was, in a way, the opposite of our world. In our world, you know, we've got fossil fuel and we've used it to power the modern world, all our buildings and our vehicles and our industry and this and that. And what we are now discovering is that we need to change to solar and wind and sustainable sources of energy. So I wanted to look at a world where we had never lost that connection with nature. And instead of going down the fossil fuel route, we had always gone down the sustainable route. So I wanted to turn the conflict around. So in the world of the soul that sings us, the baddies are the ones who want to change that sustainable world to one powered by fossil fuel because it will give them power because fossil fuels are something that they can market and control. Now, one of the reasons that in this world people have kept the connection with nature is that there are some gifted people called listeners who can tune into animal thoughts. Very difficult to understand the inside of another creature's mind, but they get something from that. And most of all, what they get is that those minds and those lives are as important as human lives. Now, of course, if you're a baddie wanting to exploit nature and use fossil fuels and cut down forests and just use it all up, then you absolutely do not want to listen to the voices of other species. And the three children, three siblings, Harlan, Ash and Zeno, who are at the heart of this story, are caught up in this conflict because the twins, Ash and Zeno, are listeners. And at the stage that my invented world is at, start of the story, listeners have become outlaws and they are being hunted down. Harlan looked down through the branches and the twins were sitting together on the back step. She'd left them with her spinning top, but they had found another game to play. A row of mice and robins, live creatures, was lined up like toy soldiers at their feet. She knew the twins had done this, and she knew it was bad. Bad people called listeners talked to animals like this. It was wrong, worse than stealing. Her teacher said 
If you know a listener, you must tell me at once, even if it is someone in your family. And so those three children then have to go on the run and they become involved in this conflict between the exploiters and the listeners in all sorts of ways. Everyone was crying. Zeno, Ash and Harland. Ma stared ahead and didn't say a word. Juno, their horse, lost a shoe. The journey home took ages. The twins fell asleep at last. Only bad people talk to animals, Ma, Harland whispered. They don't talk, Harlan. They have a power called Shardu that lets them listen inside animals' heads. Sometimes animals like the feeling, like a cat likes being stroked, and they come to take a look. But only bad people talk to animals and tell them what to do, Ma, Harlan insisted. My teachers say, Ma shook her head. They don't tell animals what to do, Harlan. They only listen, and that's a good thing. Shardu lets listeners hear animal thoughts sometimes even plant thoughts, in their minds. It helps us understand them, so we can treat them properly. Listeners are very special. Can you imagine being able to actually speak with a creature that wasn't human? I mean, what would you even say? What would you say, Nicola? Well, I suppose the first thing to say was, I'm really sorry. But I think they are not interested in that concept of sorry. I think I would say, okay, what can we do? What are the first five things that you need us to do? But you know that idea of communicating with animals is, is, is not a complete pipe dream. I, I studied sperm whales in the wild and I have an old colleague called Shane Garrow who is working to be able to decode sperm whale clicks because they have this very, very complicated system of communicating by micro clicks. What sounds like that to our ears is actually got an internal structure. And Shane has now got almost enough recordings in the context of what the sperm whales are doing at the time they make the noise to start working out and using the same computer programs that NASA space scientists have been using to potentially be able to communicate with people from other planets, other solar systems, who would not have any common language with us here on Earth. They're using those to try and help decode sperm whales. So it may be possible in the next 20, 30, 40 years for us to speak with another species whose lives, whose brains, whose priorities are totally different from ours. I think it would be a game changer. I really do. I know if you're listening to Ecolution, you're not afraid of thinking about the climate crisis. And podcasts like Ecolution are certainly one way of discussing the subject. But we asked a group of children from St. Malaga's in Balbriggan, what do they think? Should more fiction writers try and work the themes of nature loss and the climate crisis into the stories they tell? I don't think they need to do that just in case that like kids get scared and that they think like the whole world is going to end. I believe that writers should write about environmental issues as they shape young readers' brains and they do the most benefit to how they grow up. I feel like they should write about it more so kids are more aware of what's going on in the world. Even if you have dragons or mermaids or fairies in a story, it's very common for writers to leave in these social issues. It would be good for them to learn, yeah. I think that writers should tell stories because it's important for kids to know and they can get the education from that and know what they need to do. I personally think that stories help us understand how we live our day-to-day lives. The fairy tales that we hear when we're younger don't occupy the same world as ours. 
but we still understand them and how they relate to us. When you set a story in an imaginary world, it gives you all sorts of license to say things about the real world that you wouldn't be allowed to say in any other way. For instance, I have written books recently in the last few years about climate change and about the impact of climate change on the natural world and about how the natural world is our greatest friend and ally in combating the worst effects of climate change. And I have experienced censorship because either people think that children don't want to hear that stuff or think that it's too difficult for children. I don't know. I don't know what the kind of background of those editorial decisions has been, but I've had to fight against that. And that was one of the things that motivated me to want to write a piece of fantasy fiction. Because in fantasy fiction, I have the license to say actually quite political things that perhaps I wouldn't be allowed to say in a non-fiction context. Although this series of books is set in a fantasy world, like all writers, Nicola has taken inspiration from our world and her experience in it. When I was a little girl, my father, who was a food technologist, told me about his travels in the forests of Sarawak in the 1950s. And he described these amazing, pristine, old-growth primary rainforest with their enormous trees meeting over the tops of the wide rivers. And those descriptions completely fired my imagination. And many years later, I was lucky enough to go with the conservation organisation that I've been supporting for many years, the World's Land Trust, to Borneo to see some of the remnants of those forests for myself. Now, of course, many of those forests now have gone. There's very little uh, pristine primary rainforest that hasn't been logged. And an awful lot of it has gone completely and been replaced by rows and rows and rows of thousands and thousands of acres of palm oil plantation. But the forests are still there and their complexity and their mystery and all the life that they support was something that I really, really, really wanted to get in to the soul that sings us. So although the forest that is in the book isn't quite Southeast Asian rainforest because it has a forest elephant in it, and of course there are elephants in, in that part of Southeast Asia, but the elephant in my story is a bit different. I really wanted to get that feeling of the huge complexity of life and also how very easily it is destroyed if you've got the right machinery, if you've got a big enough chainsaw. The kids from St Monica's have mixed feelings on how and what they learn about the climate crisis, which is totally understandable because it can be overwhelming. Climate change and biodiversity loss are incredibly scary. And I, like everybody else who thinks about these things, you know, we all wake up at two o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat sometimes. But I'm also optimistic. And I'm optimistic for various reasons. One is that we don't know everything and nature is incredibly resilient and it's power to bounce back when it's left to its own devices, I think is enormous. Things are changing. You know, 20 years ago, nobody knew what biodiversity was. It wasn't a word you ever heard outside scientific circles. Eco, nobody knew what that meant either. Things have changed enormously. And this is a problem that, although it's not easily soluble, it's not the terrible insoluble disaster that we are often presented with. And I think there's a lot of vested interest 
in getting people to think, oh, well, you know, it's hopeless. I might as well just have a good time because that means business as usual. That means all the people at the top of the tree pulling the strings can just carry on as they've always carried on and they don't need to change. Whereas if we have hope and if we decide that we are going to do something about it and we're going to change our ways and change our society and change our culture, then that's not something that they want to hear. So of course those messages are going to be squished down. Of course you're going to be told that it's hopeless and there's no point. And the other reason that I'm optimistic is that, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is that I spend my entire time crying and wringing my hands and don't do anything. Well, that's not going to get anybody anywhere and also it's miserable. And I think for, for children growing up now, the message I really want to give them, and it's, this is actually in my next book, the sequel to Song That Sings Us, is that happiness in a life is fleeting. It washes into your life and it washes out. And it's lovely when it's around, but actually what shapes your life is purpose, having a purpose and a direction. And climate change gives us all the potential for great purpose because we can all be a part of the mending of our planet. It's going to take a long time. It's not going to be done in, in my lifetime. It's not in my lifetime. It's not going to be done in yours. It's not going to be done in the lifetime of children who are born today. It's a work that's going to take two or 300 years to get our planet back to full health. But we have in our culture models of those long projects. No European cathedral was ever built in anything less than 250 years. So not so very long ago, we as a culture were able to engage in projects that as individuals, we would not see to fruition. And it's that long view. And again, and that goes back to indigenous cultures, many of whom have a, a culture of looking back several generations and looking forward several generations and making sure that their actions now make them good ancestors. It's kind of funny to think that the lives we live now impact so much upon those that come after us, even if we are only young. We know from everyone we meet making this programme that kids have power, and Nicola encouraged us to use that power. One of the most important things that young people, and I mean even really young people, can do to help, and to help themselves in their feelings of fear and worry about what's happening to the planet is to get a voice. And by getting a voice, I mean really practice writing, drawing, representing the world around them and their own feelings about it in words. So one really, really, really simple thing, get a notebook, start looking at the world and start practicing, describing it and describing what's going on for you as you're looking at it in pictures and in words. And you will get better every time you do it. And the other thing that you need is you need to be able to use that voice out loud. So practice sharing what you think and what you feel with other people, with your friends, maybe just with one person to start off with, but then expand your audience. And you will then be training yourself to stand up for yourself and for the planet. My mother always told me, she said, you can say anything to anybody if you say it in the right way. 
and it is your right as a human to be able to speak to anyone and not to be intimidated and especially as a young person to speak out in support of your future which is currently being hijacked by all the people who will not change who will not give up on fossil fuels and who want to cling to the old ways. We're very grateful to Nicola Davies for speaking with us on Ecolation. Her book, The Song That Sings Us, is available wherever you get your books and in most libraries. And the sequel, Scrims Lee, has just been released too. I don't know about you, but I love a series of books and this one speaks really magically to us. Thanks also to Dara, Eleanor, Hannah, Meadow and Grace from St. Malaga's National School for answering our questions. The song Nicola's book alludes to has a very relatable concept. It's just one way to think about how connected we are and should be to the natural world. The song bends time, then and now and tomorrow, all tangle in the song's thread as it spreads, all in a single instant, to every place and every being in the world. It sings in voices, it sparks in glowing phosphorescence, it dances in the jumps of dolphins and the slow pulse of jellyfish, it twines in the tails of seahorses and blossoms in the spawning of corals. Albatross snatch it from the gleaming surface and spread it over waves to the cliffs of the farthest islands. It washes onto the shore, where limpets write it on the rocks. It is taken to the sky in clouds and sung in rain, passed through roots and leaves. Imagining a better world is absolutely crucial. And it's one of the ways in which climate change messages and climate change campaigning actually fails because it focuses on, oh, it's going to be terrible. Oh, it's going to be awful if we don't do this. It's the end of the world. Actually, much, much better is to say, okay, if we shift everything about agriculture, transport, education, fuel production, all those things, this is what the world will look like. And wow, it looks a lot nicer and a lot fairer and a lot more equitable and just a lot more sane for everybody, in fact. So I think that's a message that fails absolutely to get across. And the other thing that is really, really important to remember is that all change starts in here and in here. And nothing will change in the world unless you imagine it first. And that's why stories, music, art of all sorts are so important because they help to put people into that imaginary space, what I call story space. And in story space, you can make anything happen. And if you can make it happen in story space, that's the start of making it happen in the real world. Today's Ecolation was produced by Nikki Coughlin and presented by me, Evie Kenny. This is our... Our Junior Podcast!